everybody, and welcome to the CFP Mobile Studios, also known as my car. It's a new podcast that I'm debuting here today for you, and I hope you will enjoy. I've been wanting to try and find some different things to put up on the CFP feed and mess around, be a little bit creative, and give you some different stuff because I know we have not been able to punch out as much stuff as we would like to at the uh, the start of this season, unfortunately, but we are endeavoring to uh, get you more podcasts and feed the masses all of the content that you would like. And in an effort to do that today, uh, I am recording while I drive through Toronto with a full broadcast headset on my head, crawling through traffic. So if you happen to be driving on the 401 in Toronto on Saturday morning, uh, you might have looked over and seen me wearing a headset and given me a a very strange look because the strange man is wearing a broadcast headset while sitting inside of his car. So uh, You can always, of course, start your season off right. Visit our friends Fox 40 and use the promo code CFP15. Got to give them some love off the top here, of course, because they are a big part of everything that we're doing at Canadian Football Perspective. This podcast, uh, I guess, is going to be driving thoughts, essentially, because I always find myself, especially when I'm working games, whether it be Montreal, Ottawa, otherwise, and driving back towards Hamilton when I do drive, because, you know, that's a thing I like to do to punish myself, uh, that I always have thoughts about the weekend and how the games have shook out. And I usually, in all honesty, like to go back and track the games as I do, understand them, rewatch them before making any judgments or having any thoughts. But I think this week is a little bit different. And if you enjoy this podcast, maybe I'll do this more often when I have these kind of trips. The idea that there was uh, so much controversy in the game that I was able to call on Thursday night. By the way, my last Thursday night football game of the year. <laughs> I love Thursday nights, man. It's a lot of fun to kick that off. Did a couple of those this year. But uh, between Montreal and Ottawa, tremendous football game. Let me say that up front. Like, I might say that 10 times in this podcast. Like, it was so much fun. There were so many storylines and so many big plays and against the grain tendencies and uh like it was just i'll crawl through some of this stuff and again i'm doing this off the top of my head without any information in front of me just based on memory and experiencing it but it was i mean (laughs) the way that caleb evans was able to answer the bell multiple times and try to defend the job that i I talked with paul apolis about this last week was the, the idea that he said uh, Caleb Evans might not realize how incredibly fortunate he has been with a player of his relative stature in professional football being a young quarterback coming from relatively small beginnings who is not a world-class prospect or doesn't have the five-star high school tag on him or any of that stuff. He signed in a place where he has been given the opportunity to start significant amounts of time in pro football in back-to-back years. And Lapo said to me ahead of our game, you know, the Zoom calls that we do with the CFL and TSN, he's like, I I don't think he realizes how, how fortunate he's been. And I straight up said, do you tell him that? Like, do you go to Caleb Evans and say, 
do you realize how fortunate you are to be in a place where they're just because of circumstances and, you know, Matt Nichols goes down, then Dominic Davis goes down, then in you go, then Doc Hodges come in and he doesn't play very well. And then you're the guy throughout the end of the year because we don't really have anybody else. They end up signing Jeremiah Masoli. He still earns the backup role. They trust him. They want to develop him. They like what he has to offer. They like his upside. Unfortunately, we all know Masoli ends up going out 10 to 12 weeks because of the Garrett Marino hit. Well, Caleb Evans is the number two. Well, he's in. Well, Nick Arbuckle gets traded for it. Yeah, but Nick Arbuckle's not ready, even though that's an interesting note that I'll get to in a couple of minutes. And so Caleb Evans has gotten this opportunity to play in back-to-back years. And, oh, wow. That's a decent little crash. Oh, no, there's a motorcycle that was involved. And the OPP is treating somebody who fell off their motorcycle in the 401. Not great. By the way, the 401, worst highway on the planet. I'm convinced. You cannot convince me otherwise that this is not the most dangerous road on the planet. I don't know if anybody else out there has a, a, a suggestion for that. but Which also made me think, on the drive up to Ottawa, sneaky, underrated, most beautiful drive, I think, in terms of highways in Canada, like it's not exactly Highway 93 from Banff to Jasper or vice versa, Icefield Parkway and all that good stuff. Highway 416 from the 401 driving north and going up to Ottawa is a beautiful 45-minute drive. Maybe an hour if you're being a little more responsible. But 45 minutes-ish. And it's, uh, it's a gorgeous drive, so make sure you're doing that. But I take 416 all the way up to Ottawa, call that game, see Caleb Evans uh, and his ability to move around in the pocket, the opportunities that he's been given. I think, I don't want to say he's making the most of them because there are still some things that I think leave you wanting. Um, one of them being accuracy rolling to his right. Certainly frustrating. I think his mechanics just disappear completely when he rolls out of the pocket which a lot of young quarterbacks whether it be Canadian or American high school university professional football are guilty of that but it I think is really really dramatic with Caleb Evans like his base and his mechanics and they're not terrible when he's in the pocket but man when he gets outside the pocket it's it's like he thinks he can just kind of get away with anything and all of a sudden the mechanics are gone the accuracy is completely gone we saw that against Hamilton in week six when he threw back across his body and Ted Laurent almost got an interception off of him. Like, he just chucked it back across his body. It just it didn't make sense at all. Poor decision-making, but really the accuracy is the problem. And then we see it in week seven at home against Montreal where he airmails Jackson Bennett, who's just sitting in the middle of the field, and Evans just sprints right to the bench because he knew, man, I like, I just completely missed that. Like, in professional football... You just you cannot completely miss somebody who is open because you don't have the accuracy to spot the ball where you need to. And then the one that I think is, is really interesting and kind of underrated is the Darvin Adams drop at the end of the game against Montreal. Like, obviously, it's a terrible drop. Darvin Adams got both hands on it. He's in the end zone. He had an incredible night over 100 yards receiving. I think it was like 12 targets, 10 catches, something like that. He had an incredible night, but everybody will just remember that drop that he had at the end of the game because it was, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to come from 14 down in five minutes, whatever it was remaining, in order to catch this football, kick the extra point, 
if you want to tie it up or phew, man I would have been amazing theater if they would have gone for two to try and get their first win at home and their first win of the season and the first home win in 17 of the last 18 matchups and on and on and on but that Caleb Evans throw to Darvin Adams in the end zone he's rolling to his right and because he loses the accuracy and he loses the mechanics he just kind of like sidearm slings it you can actually see the football and this is like a weird little quarterback thing that people might not notice and even if you do notice you might not care but this stuff matters to me is like the ball is basically sideways like not the type of sideways football where it gets caught by the wind and it turns the nose of the football the ball is drifting because of the way it came out of his hand it's just kind of floating to the right of Caleb Evans to the left of Darvin Adams so Darvin Adams is standing alone in the end zone and I know these decisions are made in split seconds and the natural tendency of a quarterback is to throw a receiver away from where the perceived threat is. But that ball doesn't need to be high. And again, I'm not excusing the drop by Darvin Adams. That ball doesn't need to be high. That ball doesn't need to be fading away. It doesn't need to be that little sidearm delivery. You just throw it directly to the number one on Darvin Adams' uniform on the ground. And if you do that, and he still drops it, 100% on him. But I don't think he drops it. And again, that's that's easy to say without actually watching the result. But th- those are the little things that I think are frustrating about Caleb Evans' game as he's been given this opportunity. Now, Nick Arbuckle was in uniform. I love that Ottawa said, Nick Arbuckle's going to come in and be our short yardage quarterback here. Oop, just kidding. Long completion over the top on a corner route on a fake sneak. That is the creative playmaking and play calling that I think the Ottawa Red Blacks were leaning on when they decided to go with Paul Apolise as being their head coach and offensive coordinator. I think that Nick Arbuckle, despite the fact that he was in the system, obviously when he was learning in the year that was canceled by the pandemic, he still needs a little bit of time to get himself really game ready. And what he told me this week was the base terminology of the offense is the same. Like it it really hasn't changed he was surprised how much of the offense and the terminology he remembered from his time spending a year preparing. He's really excited to take what was essentially a wasted year of learning and put it into action to actually have an opportunity to bring it to life and to make plays for the Ottawa Red Blacks. The team that, in all honesty, he feels, and I agree with him, he's supposed to have been playing for the last couple of years. Like, it was a misjudgment to say, well, Matt Nichols is the solution here. We really don't trust Arbuckle after a year of preparing with him. So they they make that misstep, and it sets off this whole cascade of events where we all know the story. Nick goes from Ottawa to Toronto and Toronto to Edmonton, and Nick didn't want to say anything on the record or off the record, really, about the environment in Edmonton, but the way that he spoke about it with us this week in terms of being in Ottawa it was I don't want to say anything negative about Edmonton but man do I ever love the environment here in Ottawa and that right there an outsider's perspective is why I wrote part of the reason why I wrote the article on cfl.ca that came out on Friday morning making the case that yeah the record is bad they're 0-6 that's really disappointing also they are nowhere close to being the worst team 
in the East Division in my mind. Now, whether or not the record ends up shaking out that way at the end of the year remains to be seen, but I was doing an Ottawa-Hamilton game in Hamilton last year, three quarters of the way through the season. The Ottawa Red Blacks of 2021 were materially, I almost want to say infinitely worse than the, the Ottawa Red Blacks of 2022. The record doesn't show it right now, but the quality of that football team, you would watch the 2021 Red Blacks, you're like, oh, they have, they have no chance of winning. Like, there is nothing here that they will be able to turn into points and stops and turnovers and two and outs and special teams advantage. And it just didn't feel like that. And it's not just because of Masoli. It's the overall roster overhaul that Sean Burke has brought in. And I think it fits the personnel fits what Paul Appelis wants to do better. That's why I get kind of amazed when I see people on social and I, you're listen you're a fan you're allowed to have your opinions I'm not telling you to you know shut up don't have the opinion I just disagree with your opinion which is Paul Appelis has got to go is a b is Paul Appelis has to give up control of the head coaching job and c is we don't have the players that can get the job done I disagree with all of those if you understand like really understand the dynamic of a sideline on a professional football team basically every coach across this league because of whether it be the football operations salary cap or otherwise is doing multiple jobs like craig dickinson might not necessarily have i don't know if he actually has the tag i can't think off the top of my head of special teams coordinator mike o'Shea is just the head coach but he's really involved in every aspect of the game. Uh, Ryan Dinwiddie is doing the offense. Um, Orlando Steinauer works really closely with Mark Washington when it comes to the defense in Hamilton. Like, I can go on and on and on. Kahari Jones, obviously, was doing a lot of good work, I think, on the offensive side of the ball before Montreal, I think incorrectly, as you've heard here on CFP, let him go. So I'm looking at what the end of the game, what was the dynamic? And on the sideline, it was. Hey, Mike Benavides, you know what you're doing defensively. So go ahead and do what you got to do. I'll be over here preparing for these final two drives. And Lapo dialed it up. Like, that that was, I think, the interesting thing to me when people are like, ah, oh, he can't do the head coaching. And what do people really think head coaching is about? I think that's what this conversation comes down to. Because I asked Danny Machocha this past week, take away the X's and O's and all the other things that go into coach. How did it actually feel to be on the sideline? And he said, to be honest, I felt a little bit lost. And he said, because I'm, I'm used to being a play caller. Offensive, defensive, otherwise university, uh, CFL. He said, I'm, I'm used to being busy. And he said, I would kind of walk over and ask Anthony Calvillo, hey, do you need anything? No, no, I'm good. I'm just getting the next drive. Okay, all right. See you in a couple minutes. I'd walk over to Noel Thorpe. Noel, is there anything that I can? No, 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 I'm good. Okay, all right. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, see you in a couple minutes. Like it just, he said for the first half of that first game against Edmonton, when ironically Montreal was in control, he would just kind of walk around and he wasn't really sure what to do with himself. So the real responsibility, and it's not as low impact as a baseball manager where your job is just to, hey, do I go with the righty or the lefty? Uh, do, you know, the pitching coach has got X, Y, and Z covered and... We've got shifts on against this player, and there's a lot of different parts that are being handled by people other than the manager. But the impact of a CFL head coach 
is to be the face of your organization, which is Paul Apolis is somebody certainly that the Ottawa Red Blacks and their fan base can be proud of, despite the win-loss record as it stands right now. Because I remember covering the Hamilton Tiger Cats on radio, and we flew into Edmonton to cover a game, and the conversation was not, not if, but when Mike O'Shea was going to be fired as head coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. How dumb does that sound right now? As they remain undefeated after the victory against Edmonton on Friday Night Football. Like, Michael Shea was viewed as a deadbeat coach because the win-loss record wasn't good enough. Judging people off the wins and the losses instead of the process and the way that they get their job done, I think is a huge mistake. And I think the process of the Ottawa Red Blacks is actually really good. Like, from being around them and talking to them and understanding what they're trying to accomplish and how they're how they're building out their roster long term, what they want to turn that thing into. So that's my my way of not necessarily, you know, copying or defending the win loss record. But what I'm saying is if you just go through the standings and that's how you want to determine who's good and who's not, then I can't really help you because that's that's really not how these things are determined. There are teams in this league, in my opinion, that have wins and don't deserve them. There are teams in the East that likely deserve wins and don't have them. And it's the cold business of professional football that you're judged off of wins and losses. But if that's the only way, without context, that you're going to judge, I think you're doing a disservice to either your fandom or to your organization if you're a higher-up who is judging these things. So uh, Nick Arbuckle, again, long-winded way of, of saying this, I think he's going to get his opportunity. I think he's going to be very good. But I think he needs to be brought along in a responsible way. And, and a quote that we actually didn't get into the broadcast from Lapalise this week was him saying, I can't blame Caleb Evans for the first four games in which Jeremiah Masoli played and we didn't win. Because if you're looking at the big picture and you say, well, we're 0-5 coming into this one on Thursday Night Football, or now we're 0-6 going up against the Argonauts coming up in week eight next week. It, I can't blame Caleb for that just because the win-loss record is what it is because people will say, well, we're not winning any games. Change the quarterback. Okay, that's fine, but that he had nothing to do with that. It was the team overall. And so Lapley said, no, if, if he can't pl- place the football where he needs to, that's a completely different story. Then that's something that we need to fix. And perhaps that fix involves something to the tune of letting number 19, who you freshly acquired after Masoli was down, come in and get his opportunity to play some football. So uh, we'll see how it shakes out. But I just wanted to offer a little bit of background on all of that. Now, let's move on. And again, nice, tremendous game back and forth. I haven't even talked about Trevor Harris, Gino Lewis, Red Thought Reggie White. We had a really nice game. Jesuit Antwi ran the ball very strong. Uh, Richie Leone going up against Joseph Zima in the punting battle. I think that was sensational. The end of the game drove me as crazy as it did you. But for different reasons. Because I, I'm not a fan of any team. I don't care who wins. I, I cheer for people and I cheer for stories. And stories more than people, honestly, just because it makes it more fun for us to do our job when we have great stories to be able to tell you on the broadcast or on podcasts like this. But the end of the game, they ended up getting both of those calls correct. And I know if you're a Red Blacks fan right now, you're going, shut up. You're wrong. Well, 
again, you're allowed to have your opinion, but it was very bang-bang on both of them. And if you watch back the game, right away when both of those calls were made, both Dwayne and I in the moment went, whoa, high hit, look at that, Mike Moore, and the flag comes out. That's a good call. Wow, it's going to get a fresh set of downs that will go to the, the Ottawa Red Blacks offense here. And then you get a better look at it in real time. We said, yes, that is a correct penalty call. But then you get an opportunity to see it, not even necessarily in slow-mo, because obviously flags are always going to look different in slow motion, which was something Kent Austin used to always say. It's something that Dwayne Ford always says on the broadcast. And they're right to remind people that, yeah, you slow anything down, it's going to look dramatically different than it did when it was in real speed. But they got the call right. My problem is not with the call or with getting the call right. My problem, and I tried not to be grumpy about this on air because nobody wants to listen to a a pissy broadcaster, for lack of a better term, whining and complaining on the air. And I also have no interest in inciting the masses on national television when I'm basically running the proceedings and guiding the program. Jan Wright would say, the program. I have no interest in in doing that and firing people up more than they already were, which probably would have been difficult in Ottawa because uh, people turned around and were screaming at us in the broadcast booth. I don't know if it was because they wanted their angry voices to be heard on television or if they thought we were the command center. I'm not sure. Apparently Brad Sinopoli also had people screaming at him, which if you're an Ottawa Red Black season ticket holder and you don't know what Brad Sinopoli looks like by now, that's probably an issue. But anyways... I ended up being able to realize in real time, as we're watching those replays, hmm, yep, I think they need to to fix this call. I think this is a bad call. Now, the idea of the command center being able to alter the end of games uh, and buzz down their job, and this is where I feel like there's a bit of a gray area that fans don't necessarily, I don't want to say comprehend, but it's never an issue until it's an issue, I guess is the best way to say it. Their job is to fix any egregious error. Like, people think that it it's strictly, you know, was he offside, was he not offside, or was that pass interference, or was it not, or you don't want people that you cannot see changing the outcome of a game because it feels very awkward, I think is the the best way to put it, when there are people that are standing there in officials' uniforms not making decisions. But once you've got the toothpaste out of the tube, it ain't going back in. We are living in a world of video review and challenges and trying to get things correct. And as part of that, the command center has the ability to, oh, that was an egregious error. That was a bad call on the field. We understand why they called that, but that's actually not the call that needs to be enforced here. And so we need to fix that. The problem I have, and the reason why I was kind of hot when the game was done, to be honest. Like, Dwayne basically <laughs> had to deal with me ranting to him for 15 minutes as we left the stadium on Thursday night, was if you are going to make the wrong call, make it quick and let's play football. If you're going to correct a call that was wrong on field, correct the call and let's play football. If you're going to make a good call, make the call, and let's play football. My rule for all of this is game flow. All of it. It needed to happen 
faster. It needed to be processed. It needed to be communicated. And it, I think the most frustrating, there's a couple of frustrating things about this, but the most frustrating thing for me is it does a complete disservice to the fans that are in the stands who the, the average game time, I think, is two hours, 48 minutes. And the CFL actively tries to, to lower that. There are things that we've tried to do on the broadcast side, such as officials announcing penalties while they are walking down the field instead of doing the old official turns to the camera, finds the camera, turns on the microphone, gathers his thoughts, holding offense number 65, that's a 10-yard penalty, repeat first down. It doesn't seem like a very big thing, but that little event takes 20 to 30 seconds in order for the orchestrated circus to announce what the penalty is and do it to the broadcast. We can announce that. We can tell you what the penalty is on air, or we can just have the voice of the official in the background. That's a, a really simple way of improving game flow, shortening the length of games, allowing it to feel more entertaining. This is the stuff that like baseball actively struggles with when it comes to the pitch clock and stuff like that. Okay, So it was slow. I think it did a disservice to fans in the stands. I also think it's because there was a second game, the Thursday Night Football doubleheader, I was cringing because of how long that was taking. And I knew not only are we doing a disservice to the great football fans in Ottawa, the people that are, are spending their money to go support the BC Lions and the players of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the BC Lions, they're standing around in Vancouver like waiting for their game to begin. I don't think we were done until like 10:21 for a 7:07 kick. Like we cannot have games be 3 hours and 14 minutes. I don't know exactly what it was, but I think when I glanced at my phone at the end of the game, I went, "Whoa. I knew this felt long in the final couple minutes, but this is way too long." And it was frustrating to know that I had been guiding something trying to get it to the next game, trying to bring you a fantastic finish to a great football game, and it was completely out of my control. And the tension was building and building and building inside TD Place because people just wanted a result to these things and to be able to move forward, and they could not do it because it was out of their control. Now that, I think will be addressed. I know the officiating department, I know Darren Hackwood, the director of officiating, does a fantastic job at trying to speed these things up and trying to communicate it. For those of you that, that don't know, the officials, all of them, they meet on Wednesdays on Zoom, being able to come together, have a meeting, talk about the week that was, the week that's coming up. Like, they work at this stuff, okay? So it's not some fly-by-night, make-it-up-as-we-go situation. They study, they work, they communicate. They they want to do what's right for the fans. But the end of that game was clunky and slow, and I was disappointed because I think I just genuinely think the CFL is such a great product as an entertainment property that you can't have the end of a game be a bunch of people standing around on the field, staring at each other, wondering what's wrong. And and there's two other things that I'll mention about this situation at the end of the Ottawa-Montreal game. The first is that when everybody is standing around at the end of the game, my heart hurt for Caleb Evans. Because sports psychology is a hell of a thing. And I've always said, 
I've experienced this when I was playing quarterback as well as just studying games. The percentage of turnovers, bad plays, incompletions, fumbled snaps that happen after you're standing around on the field has to be three or four times that of when you're in the flow or the rhythm of the game. It's why before quarterbacks get onto the field ahead of every drive, they're throwing the football because they're trying to get rid of the first time they touch the ball on the field on first and 10. The ball comes out of their hand sideways because they're not in rhythm. They're, that's something that is that is sports psychology. That is, oh, I just felt this football when I was on the sideline. I, just, I already got 10 throws in a minute ago. This doesn't feel weird to me at all. I'm going to put the ball exactly where I need to with my first throw of actually being on the field and in the game. So Caleb Evans is standing on the field for so long, just waiting, just like begging, can, can we go? Can we play? And there's no way that they, <laughs> you can come out of standing around on the field as a young quarterback in your second year in professional football You've got all this momentum driving the length of the field, going for the game-tying score. You've put up 33 points on the board. You've given yourself an opportunity to win. And all of a sudden, it's just stagnant. And I doubt Caleb Evans would ever admit it, but that messes with your head. That's a really difficult thing to overcome, and I think you saw that. Like, it's, it's not an easy spot to be in as a quarterback. And then the last thing that I'll say about this situation is um, Dan Lebetard, who I listen to his podcast a lot and listened to him when he was on ESPN Radio and all the rest, he has this great analogy that I, I don't know where he picked it up from, but he says, it's better to be poor than to be wealthy and then poor. And the reasoning for that is that if you have wealth, being poor is a lot more painful. If you have never experienced the feeling of wealth then it's kind of all you know and you live with it and you're at peace with it or you know it's your reality and twice in five minutes the Ottawa Red Blacks fans felt wealthy because there's that burst of energy and excitement that says oh we have a fresh set of down oh man we're, we're gonna do this and you can feel the entire stadium just celebrate yeah they, we wow we got a call we can and then it gets taken away. And when it gets taken away, you feel like you just went from the guy who drives a Porsche and has the you know, four-bedroom home in the nice part of town to, oh, I'm bankrupt and I'm driving a Camaro. Shout out to Camaros. But I just, that, that analogy to me really struck home because on top of all the tension of that building and wanting to win the football game, you end up having people who feel as though they've been gifted something and then having it ripped away. You know, same, same analogy is hand a child a present and then rip it out of their hands and give it to their sibling. They're going to be a lot more upset than if you never handed them the present. And there's nothing you can do about that because you've got to get the call right. But I think that played into the emotional guttural response that came from that entire situation. So not, not a fantastic way uh, to have that that game round out, but uh, Montreal is a bit of a conundrum. Ottawa, I think, has significantly brighter days ahead, but none of that matters when you wake up and you're 0-6, certainly. And I talked to some of the Red Blacks players after the game, too, and they know they're better than the record. But I guess the question becomes, at what point does the record have to represent 
that you're a better team. And we'll find that out going forward. Uh, I rambled for uh, 32 minutes, I think, about uh, Ottawa-Montreal. This is not going to be a two-hour podcast. That's not the goal of this. Uh, I do just want to say my piece on on Hamilton and BC. I was watching it from a bar in Ottawa after we were done our, our Ottawa-Montreal game. Uh, so I don't really have the context. I haven't listened or watched back to it yet. But I just one thing that jumped out to me was Braylon Addison, I thought, had an amazing game. Like his yards after the catch, making people miss in the open field, making good reads, being on the same page with Dane Evans. Um, looked really, really good to me. Just uh, somebody was watching it without the audio on. And Tunde Adelike against Lucky Whitehead in the open field is ridiculous. Like That is as athletic a matchup one-on-one as you're going to see. There was a play, I think it was in the second quarter, that just jumped off the screen. It was either like a little crossing route or a jet sweep. I forget. I just remember Lucky was running horizontal, and he catches it. And it's one of those plays where it's like it's man coverage all over the place, and uh, you've got you know linebackers that have been you know rubbed and and bumped and all the rest, and you have Tunde from free safety being the one who turns and is like, oh, I have to chase the angle and go get Lucky Whitehead here, and seeing Lucky being chased by Tunde is just like, if you if you don't think there's incredibly athletic players in the Canadian Football League. Just go and watch BC Hamilton and watch every time that, that Tunde and Lucky were up against each other. Cause, and then Javon Katoy, the, the monster built out of granite muscle, catching a ball in the end zone on crossing route too. Like that's, it's just, it's stupid to be able to watch that stuff. So uh, pretty special to see. And then the Winnipeg-Edmonton game I did watch as well on Friday Night Football and uh, – Man, I mean, Kalaros being able to get the victory with seven completed passes. I think a little bit of it was the the lack of Greg Ellingson giving him the comfort. Uh, game probably likely should not have come down until as late as it did because Dalton Schoen would have had that touchdown grab in the first half if he didn't lunge. I don't know why he didn't just keep running and run underneath it. But uh, Ellingson not being there, I think, impacted Zach's comfort throwing over the middle of the field because back in week six against Calgary on Friday night football when they had the the battle of the undefeateds, the Stampeders and the Bombers, looking back at Kalaros' target chart, like he absolutely owned the middle of the field and it was just work the pocket, over the middle, you know, uh, have linebackers, read off of them, settle down between zones and consistently make the right play and get it out of his hands before the rush could get there. Uh, there was a little bit less of that. thought Rasheed Bailey played nice. Uh, I thought Schoen did his best to try and make up for the the targets that Ellingson usually gets. But again, from Sturg, kind of studying the targets, Ellingson is, everything goes through him. And without having him on the field, that naturally is going to be a more difficult mission um, for the for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So hopefully he's back in the lineup uh, sooner rather than later. I thought Willie Jefferson had a really active night. It was It was fun to see Willie. There's two players in the CFL that really, to me this year, feel like, they have been returned to their natural state, which is fun-loving football players who make great plays when they are playing fast and not having to think about anything. Bo Levi Mitchell and Willie Jefferson, like two stars of stars. You might think that sounds dumb because those guys never really dropped off all that much, but Bo dealt with some injuries and Willie... I feel like at times it's just kind of been negated because people maybe figured him out a little bit or uh, they knew how to kind of get after him in the run game or, you know, he had that season of a billion knockdowns, I think it was in 2019. 
and it seems like teams have, have game planned effectively and Jackson Jeffcoat I think has been making a lot more plays the last couple of years but Willie with Jackson out I thought looked like he was bouncing around and making life really difficult last night for Taylor Cornelius as I was watching that one so that was really fun to see and honestly good to see because I think Willie is one of if not the best personalities in the Canadian Football League um, to the point where I'm watching that game with my nephews three years old five years old and my five-year-old nephew says to me, Uncle Marshall, do you know who I'm cheering for in this game? I said, no, buddy. He said, the blue team. I said, okay, you know who that is, right? Yeah, he goes, oh, yeah, that, Winnipeg. Okay, sounds good. Why do you like Winnipeg? He said, number five. And I kind of laughed because I'm like, yeah, he doesn't even know who he is, but he said number five. And I said, hey, this kid's five years old, okay? This is a great example of, like, marketing stars and being able to create the next generation of CFL football fans, which is, by the way, wild that my my sister's two boys, they already know every team in the CFL by logo. And it's just because the games are on or because I'm working them and they watch or whatever. But it's pretty cool when it's like, hey, who are you cheering for tonight? And they're like, mm, I think I like the Red Blacks to beat the Ticats tonight. And I'm like, you're five. How do, you, how do you even understand? Like when I was five, I didn't even know what a football was, I feel like. Uh, but... He says, I cheer for number five. And I said, oh, okay, like, why Why do you cheer for number five? And he said, he's always smiling and he's always dancing. This kid is five years old. He doesn't understand. I asked him if he knew what it meant to take a snap at one point because I was like, here, snap me the ball when we were playing out in the park the other day. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, he doesn't understand a, a single thing about the game, but he understands visually personality like that kid has absorbed personality and he understands that oh i might not know anything about this game but i like that guy because he seems fun and to me that just struck a chord when we're constantly talking about how are we going to make the cfl fan base younger and and more exciting and want to spend money to go to games and all that kind of stuff so uh he loves willie jefferson I think Bombers fans love Willie Jefferson. I think CFL fans love Willie Jefferson. Even if he's playing at a high level against your team, he's one of those rare guys where you just kind of like laugh and shake your head and be like, ah, damn it, Willie got us again. Ah, whatever, it's Willie Jefferson. He's fine. And uh, so it's nice to see him playing at a high level. But that's going to do it for this podcast. Uh, Hope everybody enjoys Saskatchewan against Toronto coming up on Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern. A little Sunday night football in CFL can't hate that uh thank you again to fox 40 for supporting everything we do around here of course go to their website fox40shop.com use the promo code cfp15 you got yourself whistles coaching boards uh, ball pumps anything that you need you can get it from fox40shop.com and they've been nice enough to give you that promo code cfp15 for us here at canadian football perspective so that you can save yourself a little bit of money on the side ain't nothing wrong with that uh thanks for listening we do appreciate it hoping to get the daily news the breakdown a couple of all canadians at you coming up this week and uh you never know might have more of these of me rambling to myself as i drive through toronto uh which by the way uh i I made it to oakville in the time that we did this podcast i think i started in i'll say like don valley Eh, that's not bad okay bye